0: Turn in your Bibles uh, this afternoon to First John chapter number 3. I'm apt to say tonight or this morning or maybe tomorrow or yesterday. I don't know. It's it's always odd saying this afternoon, isn't it, Jim? It always feels weird when we say it, don't this afternoon, because we're not used to meeting in the afternoon. But uh, I'm excited about this message God laid on my heart last night, and I trust that God will use it in your heart. Let me say how much I appreciate everybody that labored and, and some folks are over here that labored a lot with, with uh, the homecoming, but a lot of them are still over there working and, and laboring even right now. Uh, but I just appreciate everybody. I mean it don't matter if you if you came in and worked the kitchen or if you just prepared something and brought it, or if you just invited somebody or came yourself, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And uh, days like today couldn't happen without God's people and their faithfulness and uh, I appreciate so much what God has done on this day. First John chapter number three, I want to read three verses and make three statements. And then we'll go to the house. I didn't think you'd buy that. Amen. But First John chapter number 3. And uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1. First John chapter 3 verse number 1. The Bible says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this afternoon. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. Thank you for the way that you met with us this morning. Lord, my heart is heavy. I don't know the heart's condition of any person that sat through that service this morning. But it sure wouldn't be a surprise in a, in, a, in a crowd the size that we had this morning for there to be somebody that was lost. And there were several that raised their hands acknowledging such. And I just pray, Lord, as was prayed already, that you not let them rest easy. But, Lord, that you continue to cultivate, Lord, to continue to, to percolate that truth in their heart and in, in their mind. Lord, may they not be able to escape from it until you win the victory in their heart. We'll be sure to thank you for what's done. Now, bless our preaching in this moment, and may you use it in hearts to glorify you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I love the book of First John. To me, it is probably one of the most fascinating books in the entirety of the Word of God, especially when it's rightly interpreted, applied, and understood within the context of it. The chief theological heresy of the early New Testament church that they combated against was a movement that was called Gnosticism. We today use a very similar word when we speak of those that claim that that it's impossible to know whether there's a God. They call themselves agnostics. Typically, when you have the prefix A uh, added to something, it negates it, right? An, An atheist is somebody that believes there is no God, no theism, no God. An agnostic is someone that would claim it's impossible to know. But in the early New Testament church, the, the thing they battled was not a group of agnostics, but a group that called themselves Gnostics. And they claimed to have special knowledge that you couldn't just find in your Bible. You had to be initiated into, into their movement. And I'll tell you this, anybody that tells you that they have a special knowledge, it's not in your Bible, but they'll let you know what it is, will soon follow up with for three easy payments of thirty They're trying to sell you something. Uh, we've got everything we need. Well, yeah, that was before inflation. Now it'd be like $149.99 per, per payment. But, uh, you know, listen, one of the things I love about God and love about the Bible is he, he puts us all on the same playing field, gives us the same Bible, and allows us all to have the same truth that we need for our lives. And so First John was written to combat against this concept of Gnosticism. When you understand what they held to, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time this afternoon talking about what they believed, but just simply say this, that he wrote what he wrote to dispute and to dispel and to expose their bad doctrine. We have a responsibility to walk in truth and to walk in light. Part of what that requires is, is, is exposing darkness and exposing lies and falsehood. And John writes this uh, little New Testament epistle that he might encourage a group of believers in the salvation that they have through Jesus Christ. I'm glad that what we have in Him is enough. It's not just enough, man. It's more than enough. I mean, it's overabundant. It's extravagant, the grace of God is. And what we have in Jesus Christ is more than enough for what you may ever face. Now, he's talked about some of their heresies. In chapter number one, he exposed the lies they had about sin being relative and subjective. They claimed that they couldn't sin. They could do what other people did, but to them it wasn't sin because they were so enlightened and transcendent. By the way, that, that, that lie still gets peddled today. Uh, this idea that, well, you know, my version of grace means that I really can do no wrong. That's not the grace of God. The grace of God does not, does not uh, seek to reshape, redefine your sin, but it exposes it and deals with it in the mercy of God. And so in in chapter 1, he's dealt with this lie, this notion uh, that they could not sin. In chapter number 2, he has showed the the pedigree of his knowledge and of his revelation and showed how that when Christ came, he was reaffirming ancient biblical truths and how that in Jesus Christ, we have something far superlative to what the world could ever offer us. And in chapter number 3, he seeks to reinforce the privileged status that every believer has in Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that what we have as a born-again believer is not some second-class religion. It's not some second-class Christianity. Uh, Listen, and I believe that our walk with God, it doesn't end when we get saved. It begins when we get saved. But, you know, you've got folks that they would say, well, just faith? Just faith? You mean not faith and good works? No, just faith. You mean just faith, preacher? Just faith, not faith and baptism? No, just faith, uh, preacher. You're saying just faith in Jesus Christ? That's all that it takes, and and not effort, and not labor, and not serve. No, just faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it requires. And that's not to the exclusion of the of the wholesomeness and goodness of some of those other things. But John is reminding them because here they were faced with a group of individuals that were saying that their Christianity was somehow second class, that it was somehow uh, subpar and inferior to the level of, of relationship that they had with God. And so John is writing them to remind them to never hang their head low, but to stand proudly in the grace of God and in what He's done in saving them. And to do so, he presents three truths in this passage of Scripture. I want you to notice them with me, and then we'll be done. I'm not sure how much mileage you people got left in you, amen? So I've got to preach quick. Notice with me verse number 1. The Bible says this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What's the evidence of that? Well, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The first truth that John mentions and invokes regarding their walk with the Lord and the great privilege of it is an empirical truth that is to be beheld. Now that word empirical used to be pretty common in scientific nomenclature. It's become less and less relevant as science has become less and less scientific. But for something to be empirical means it is to be observable. Oftentimes, often times these two science was talked about the uh, the empirical proof of things or the empirical observation of things. What science is supposed to be, as opposed to being propaganda, as opposed to being political muscle, as opposed to being uh, sort of political gamesmanship or brinksmanship, what science is supposed to be is simply the observation of, of things and of processes in nature and in the world around us. And it used to be that people focused on the idea of empirical proof. John invokes this idea of beholding something. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to stop and look at a fact that we all accept and embrace and know to be true. And that fact is the love of God expressed through the cross of Calvary. He points to three things here. Number one, he mentions the great expression of God's love. I love the way he says it. Behold. In other words, look at the way God loves you. Look at the love. That he has towards you. Behold, and then notice this phrase, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. He's going to talk about the way that has manifested in our lives when he says that we should be called the sons of God. But I want you to notice that word manner. He's saying look at what kind it is. You know, I would say this, that defined rightly, there's really only one kind of love. But we understand that we live in a world that has a plethora, a multitude of definitions of what love could be. Now we understand that none of that is true, but I'd remind you that he's writing to a group of believers that are being bombarded on every hand, being told that there's somebody else that God loves more than He loves them. These Gnostics are saying God loves us more. That's why He showed us more. He just doesn't love you that much. And John says, if you ever want to know the uh, the purity, if you ever want to know the integrity, if you ever want to know the majesty and the intensity of the love of God, just stop and con- consider. Consider Calvary and what he did for you and me. When we look at Calvary, there is no greater manner of love that can be shown. People express love in all types of ways. One of the things, I'm getting ready to offend somebody, but that's okay. We already fed you. You ought to give me a little grace. But one of the things I hear people say all the time, they'll use this term love language. You ever heard that? That comes from from a book that really is a lot of new wave mysticism, but uh, that the idea, and I understand what people mean, is that you know so people value certain things above other things, and blah blah blah, and everything. And my love language is this, and my love language is that, and your love language is this, and your love language is that. And really, it's just a way of saying this is what I want you to buy me. That's really what it is. <laughs> but people claim to have all manner of ways of expressing the love that they may have towards someone, and certainly it can be true uh, that we might have, uh, you know disconstant ideas of how we express love but when we look at calvary we see love of the highest caliber love as it's expressed is expressed through selflessness and through sacrifice however we may choose to try to show someone that we love them it all really fundamentally boils down to the same thing i will do without so that you may have i will do without so that you may have i will do without my time so that you may have time I will do without my treasure so that you may have treasure. I will do without my energy so that you may have energy. We speak about a mother's love, and there's probably no uh, clearer or purer earthly example of love than the way that a mother loves her child. And that begins when they begin to carry that child and literally give of their own body to the life and nourishment and growth of that child. Love is defined through the concept of sacrifice. And I would say this to you at Calvary. Hey, at Calvary. There's never been somebody give so much for somebody that was worth so little and could give so little in return. There can be no greater measure of sacrifice than for God to empty himself on a cross to become our sin and bear our sin and die for us. There's never anyone that went from being so high to being so low, that went from being so clean to being so filthy, that went from being so rich to being so poor. Hey, uh, Paul said, this is the grace of God, that Jesus Christ, though he were rich, yet for your sakes became he poor, that through his poverty ye might be made rich. There's no greater expression of God's love than to look at Calvary. John points to the great expression of that love. But then number two, he points to the great promotion of that love. He says that we should be called the sons of God. Good exercise for you to bring about a little humility in your life is replace the word we with your name. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon me that Toby should be called a son of God the wondrous thing of God's love and its expression towards us is it was not merely something that succored us in our state, but it's something that elevated us from our state. It didn't just minister comfort where we were, but it lifted us out of what we were and made us something entirely different. You see, love is really of no effect if it has no outlet or expression or impact or force on a person's life you can love somebody all that you want but the bible says we're to love in deed and in truth and you can love someone but if that never manifests in anything meaningful in anything tangible then it has been of no effect you might as well have not loved at all but god when he loved us he loved us in such a way that it changed who and what we were Say, Preacher, how much does God love me? He loves you enough that he'd call you his child. He loves you enough that he'd call you his child. I can't imagine an expression of love more endearing than to call someone your child. John says, the Christianity that you and I have, it is not some second-rate, second-class, hand-me-down love that God has for us. He didn't make us a stepchild. He didn't make us a godchild. He didn't make us a cousin. He didn't make us a neighbor. He didn't make us a friend. And He didn't make us an acquaintance. But He literally scooped us in as close as we could possibly be and made us a child of God. John says, you don't ever have to be ashamed of who you are. In relation to the Lord, if you're saved, you're a child of God. But then he points to the great division of that love. This has always been an interesting phrase in scripture because if I'm being honest, it kind of looks like it don't fit. It does fit because all scripture fits. But it kind of sounds like it doesn't. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not Because it knew him not. It's interesting, that word manner carries with it the idea of something that is foreign or something that is alien. And now John tells us, this is the reason the world doesn't know you is because it didn't know him. You know, part of what's so broken about our Christianity, we want to be like Christ without being treated like Christ. We want to be like Christ without being treated like Christ. We want to have all of the characteristics and all of the comfort. We want our life to be blessed and touched by the hand of God. We want to be used of the Lord. We want to enjoy sweet, intimate fellowship with Him and yet never experience the intense persecution and hostility and alienation that Christ felt when He walked this earth. I don't know if you realize this, man. They hated Him. They hated Him. I mean, they they hated him so much it'd make it look like how they feel about Trump is they love him. I mean, they hated him. They they didn't just tolerate him. There was a maddening hate that they felt deep within themselves when they saw him and when they heard him. They probably couldn't even explain it, but they felt it deep within. You know, when you got saved and got born again, it's not an accident that all of a sudden you can't fellowship with the world the way you used to. Christ took up residence in your life. Why would we think that we could be a son of God without being treated like a a, a son of God? We want heaven to treat us like a son of God. We just don't want the earth to treat us like a son of God. We, we We want the Lord to treat us like that. We just don't want our neighbors to treat us like that. And we anticipate that somehow... We can embrace the great status and love and privilege and dignity that it is to be a son of God. Man, what a glorious thing that he'd look down at you and say, that's my child, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's my child, that's my precious one. And we would think that that wouldn't change the way the world looks at us. Of course it would. Because the reality is, it's not that Christ set about alienating the world around him. It's that the world was already alienated from God. And inasmuch as He as the Son of God was the expression of the character and person of God, a world alienated from God was alienated from the express image of God, the brightness of God's glory. They couldn't have fellowship with Christ because they didn't want fellowship with the Father. And if you and I have fellowship with the Father and enjoy being a child of God, why would we not think that that would divide us from the world around? said, but preacher, I need to reach the world. Oh, yes, and Christ reached the world. Preacher, I need to be loving and compassionate. Oh, yes, and Christ was loving and compassionate. But understand that if you live for God, there will be a division between you and those that hate Christ. That's not broken about your Christianity. That's functional about your Christianity. That's not something that's wrong. That's something that's right about it. And we find that John points to this empirical truth That's to be beheld. He says, look at how much he loves us. Look at what that love means. Look at what that love does. But then number two, he gives us a theological truth to be believed. First, he says, I just want you to examine this fact of Calvary and what it implies to us. But I'm sure that the Gnostics that were reading that letter, maybe some of them, even in the presence of those that John was seeking to write to, probably would have spoken up and said, yeah, you're a son of God, are you? You don't act like a son of God. You don't live like a son of God. You don't behave like a son of God. And the Spirit of God, knowing what was in the heart of man, already addresses that issue. He says in verse 2, Beloved, I like that word, beloved. Beloved, in other words, he's reminding us God loves us. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I love this passage of Scripture because it displays clearly an important theological truth, and it's the idea of positional truth. You've heard me talk a lot about this, but I'll go ahead and be the broken record, and just reemphasize it in this afternoon message that, if we're going to rightly understand the condition of the believer, we have to recognize there's a difference between positional and practical truth. Positional truth is what you are in Jesus Christ in the eyes of God. It's what God, we could use the term, judicially reckons you. I am right now perfect in the eyes of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am sinless, I am spotless. Jesus Christ is made unto me sanctification and wisdom and righteousness. I am justified in the eyes of God. Here's what John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Not one day you hope to be, now are ye the sons of God. But here's the fact, I don't always live that way. You don't always live that way. Don't always behave in that manner. And there, positional truth comes crashing into practice we find that there is positional truth of who and what I am in the eyes of God. And it is legitimate, and it is authentic, and it is salient, and it is potent, and it is everything of substance. But it also takes into account the practical reality of who and what we are. You see, here, John is pointing to a theological truth, and he mentions three things regarding it. First, he points to a present reality. Now are we the sons of God. That's what we are in Jesus Christ. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Hey, thank God I'm not what I used to be. But thank God I'm not what I'm going to be. (laughs) I mean, listen, if you could see what I was in the eyes of God, you'd be awful impressed with what I am today. But if you could see what I'm going to be one day, by the promise of God and His grace and His mercy, it's far better than what I am today. Man, I sure enough wouldn't want to be stuck like this in heaven forever. I sure enough wouldn't want to be stuck like this in heaven forever. He points to a present reality. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it does not paint for us with rose-tinted glasses a picture of reality that is different than what it is. God knows what you are. He doesn't expect you to lie. He doesn't expect you to be a hypocrite. He doesn't expect you to pretend. He knows what you are. Go ahead and be honest with Him. You might as well. Because he already knows. We are the sons of God. We're not waiting. I enjoyed baptizing today. I always enjoyed baptizing. Kaylee was already a child of God before she ever got baptized. Okay. Baptizing didn't make her a child of God. She was a child of God the moment that she received Christ by faith last year at Vacation Bible Amen. School. That means she hasn't had some second-rate Christianity from that day till now. Amen. She's had as much of Christ then as she's got now. Yeah. She is a child of God. I got saved as a 10-year-old Boy, and I was baptized not long after, but listen, my life, I hope it's gotten better and not worse. I wasn't waiting to get into ministry to be saved. I was already saved the moment I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. wasn't waiting to start tithing to be saved. I was already saved the, the moment uh, that I believed on Jesus Christ. Hey, li- mm. <laughs> There's a present reality. Well, I'm about to get in trouble by being a smart aleck. It ain't really preaching. But uh, <laughs> I see a present reality in this passage. But then it doesn't end there. And again, I'm I'm glad because God doesn't just point to what we are and then say tough. Sometimes people come to me and they'll share problems with me. And I and sometimes I and I know people just a lot of times they need somebody to listen. They need somebody to be an encouragement and a blessing. But I can't tell you the times that I've sat there and listened to someone's problems and thought to myself, I can't do anything for you. (laughs) I can't fix what's wrong. I don't mind you telling me. I'm not being ugly. I'm just saying I can't fix it. I can't change it. I pray for you to a God that can, but I can't fix this for you. I'm helpless to change your circumstance. I'm glad God's never helpless. And He doesn't just look at us and say, well, must be terrible to be you. No, God has a plan to deal with our present reality, and it involves a promised return. He says this, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. In other words, he points to the fact that we are not living in a static state of brokenness throughout all of eternity. Man, I'm glad heaven's going to fix a lot of things. I'm glad the return of Christ is going to set things straight. I don't know about you, man. I just I I'm so cynical. I get so disgusted with society. I mean, just everything. I just I I, I just I'm probably a miserable person to be around because I just always got a problem with with just how messed up Everything's messed up, and everybody's dumb, and it's all hard, and that's just the world we live in. But I'm glad that heaven's not that way, and I'm glad that Christ is coming back. I have zero hope in society to fix what ills it. I I have zero hope in any politician. I've given up wholesale on politics as an answer or means. We can't even if they'd let us vote, we couldn't vote our way out of this. I have no, I have no hope of any of that getting better. I don't think we're gonna inflate our way out of it. I don't think we're gonna hike our way out of it. I don't think we're gonna vote our way out of it. I don't think we're gonna hope our way out of it. I don't think any of it's gonna get any better until Christ comes back. Amen. Now you say, well, preacher, you're awful discouraged. No, I'm not discouraged. I just gave you the best news anybody could possibly give you. He's coming back. I like how John says it affirmatively. We know. Not, well, we hope. Well, some people think. Well, you know, depending on your perspective. Now, John didn't have no time for that. Not when people, not when ravenous wolves were devouring the church. He said, no, we know. We know he's coming back. We have no question. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. There's not only a present reality and a promised return, but there's a perfect realization that will come to pass. I love that phrase, we shall be like him. That phrase at the end of verse 2, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. I'm going to be honest with you, I think it's probably one of the deepest phrases in all of Scripture. I can't even begin to take a, a little bit of a scratch at the glacier that that statement is. First off, think of the comfort. We shall be like him. You know the ambition of every believer's life should be to be like him. The most important priority in your life, above anything else, before you put food in your belly, before you pay your bills, uh, before you put gas in your gas tank, should be to be like Him. That's our great ambition, that's our great passion, that's our great hope, and that is our great purpose, is that we're going to one day be like Him. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, Forgetting those things that are behind this one thing I do, he said. This one thing. Paul said, I could distill my life down to one thing. And it would be to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To be like Him. I fail at that daily. I fail at that moment to moment. I mean, I can't even tell you the the, the ways in which I fail at that. Oh, it blesses my heart to know that one day I will be like him. My flesh doesn't win. My weakness doesn't win. One day I will be like him. I can't explain everything about the next phrase. I'm fascinated with it. We shall see him as he is. Why are we going to be like him? Because we'll see him as he is. Paul talked about in, I believe it's the book of 2 Corinthians, although I may be saying it might be 1 Corinthians, but how that in beholding Him, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. I can't explain everything about it, but I'll tell you my perspective. I think the majesty of the glory of His countenance will be so overwhelming that just the eminence of His person, the emanation of who He is, just the glow that comes off of will completely transform who and what we are. I think it is the glory of His person and righteousness that will energize and transform our dead bodies that our spirit might rejoin with them. I can't explain everything about that. I just know this. The more I look at Him, the more I'm like Him. And right now I see through a glass darkly. But then it'll be face to face. Now I know in part. But then I'll know even as also I am known. When I keep my eyes on Him, I become more like Him. And one day, won't just be the eye of faith that I'll see him with, but it'll be these eyes, Job said, whom I shall behold for myself in my body. I shall look at him. And when I do, I can't explain all of the physics and biology and science behind it. I can't even attempt to explain the theology or the mechanism of it. But I know when I see him, I'm going to be like him. It's going to transform who and what I am. And I won't have to be weighed down by the the persecution and onslaught and hostility of a flesh that hates God. I'll be freed from it. Like the songwriter said, we'd be freed like a bird, take our flight from this broken vessel. I see an empirical truth to be beheld. I see a theological truth to be believed. But then verse 3, short little verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I see a practical truth to be behaved. John says, if you know verse 1, then you'll believe verse 2. And if you believe verse 2, then you'll behave verse 3. You see, we talk all the time about the limitations of our theological knowledge. But I love, God gives us no excuse. All we have to do is start at Calvary and work our way outward. And over and over and over again in the Bible, you'll find, particularly in New Testament epistles, that it always centers around Calvary. Paul would would go to Calvary, take somebody by the hand, and start the journey of truth there. He would always point back to Calvary. And John does the very same thing. He starts by saying, you know that God loves you. And knowing that God loves you, what does that tell you about God's plan for you and what He has in mind for you? And knowing what He has planned for you and what He has in mind for you, what does that suggest about how you should live and what you should do? He talks about this hope in verse 3. Every man that hath this hope. What hope? The hope of being like him. Well, who has that hope? Every born-again believer has that hope. We are, are, are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. One of the great tragedy of what the Calvinists have done is not just the things that they have wrongly said we are predestined to, but the glorious things that they have robbed us of recognizing that we are predestined to. It's, in other words, it's not, just their, it's not just the wrong truth that they peddle, it's the right truth that people miss. And the fact of the matter is, one of the great, grand, glorious truths of Scripture is that no matter where you're at in this journey, one of these days, the return of Jesus Christ is going to catch us all up and make us like Him. We'll be like Him. So what does that hope do? What should it mean? We say every single service at this church, the Lord's coming back. What does that mean to us? How does that change the way that we live? Well, notice... John tells us how it should change us. Notice, number one, what is required by this hope. Every man that hath this hope in him. Now, there's two things I'd say about this. One, we shouldn't be surprised when lost people don't live like saved people. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't scandalize us. We should pretty much expect lost people to live like lost people because they don't have this hope in them. But then I would make a second statement about it. The very fact that this is theologically true of your life does not necessarily mean it's practically true. There's all sorts of people that are saved and this hope is available to them, but they do not embrace this reality and hope in their life. And here's what's required of this hope. It has to be in you. Not just on you. Not just around you. It has to be in you. Well, how would a hope enter into a person's life. When they believe it and embrace it and respond to it. The Bible talks about the Old Testament saints that saw the promises of God afar off and it says they saw them and they embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. It's not enough for it to just be a theological reality. You have to embrace this truth as true. You have to embrace this truth as in force and powerful in your life. And John says, if this can change our life, we have to embrace it and recognize it and walk in the strength. Of. When we do, notice what is rendered by this hope. Every man that hath this hope in him, what does it do? Purifieth himself. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I think that there is a temptation to view this as an exercise of the will. That a clear theological mind will recognize this and respond in great discipline. To exact this truth. But I don't really think that's what John's getting at. In other words, let's say it this way. I don't think he's just saying, straighten up and fly right. I don't think that's what he's getting at. What he's saying is this, that the reality of this hope in your life, in as much as you've embraced it, is going to place within you an appetite for purity. It's going to make you want to live right. It's going to make you want to do right. Now, you say, well, preacher, my flesh. Oh, I know, my flesh, my flesh, my flesh, mine too. But it doesn't change the fact that if this is real in our life, there will be an a, a, an, an, mm, an instigation to live right. There'll be a passion to live right. There'll be an inclination to live right. And when a person has no interest in the things of God, whatever else it says about them, it declares this plainly and loudly that they don't believe Christ is coming anytime soon. I think a lot of us accept it theologically, but do we practically? Wonder what a daze would look like if we really thought he was coming back any day. Wonder what our testimony would look like if we really thought he was coming back at any moment. I see what is required by this hope and I see what is rendered by this hope. But why is that? Well, finally, I see what is regarded by this hope. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Why do they do that? even as he is pure. Now, I want you to remember what the hope is. The hope is not that he's coming back. That is a certainty. That is an incontrovertible fact. We know, we understand that's a reality. Whether we believed it or not, that would be the case. But the hope that energizes our life is the hope that springs from that reality. Let's just, let's reverse engineer it. Let's remember where we started here. He said, you don't have to worry that your Christianity is second rate. Look at Calvary. You can see God loved you with everything that He has and everything that He is. And what He did with that love is He procured for you the status of a child of God. He wants you to make, He wants to make you like His Son. He wants to make you like Jesus Christ. God knows that you're not already like Jesus Christ. You know that you're not already like Jesus Christ. They know that you're not already like Jesus Christ. But wouldn't you know that God already has a plan to deal with that? And that plan is, He's coming back. And When He comes back, He's going to fix everything that's messed up about you. He's going to fix everything that's broken about you. Now, if you believe God's going to do that, and if you believe that God's great ambition and desire is to make you like Jesus Christ, if that hope really lives within you, then that is going to encourage you and provoke you to be more like Him day by day. And what you're going to care about is what He deems and defines as pure. What you're going to care about is trying to be pure like He's pure. Trying to be passionate like He's passionate. Trying to be devoted like He's devoted. And herein is what Paul says when he says, not as though I were already perfect, either already attained, But follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended. See, here's the thing. When people believe Jesus is coming back soon, they care far more what he thinks than they do what anyone else thinks. But not merely because he is our master, we are his servant, and there'll be a judgment seat of Christ. But because the whole purpose of God saving us in the first place was to make us like him. Remember that this foreign, alien, divine, celestial love that entered our life when God saved us, that made us like Jesus and separated us, severed us from the world in our kinships and affections, that same love is still actively working in our lives day by day. And what that will mean is we'll become less like them and more like Him. Here's the question I have for you. I don't doubt that probably everybody in this room you, you know that the Lord loves you. You probably don't question that. Maybe in times of darkness, maybe in times of discouragement. But, I mean, when the smoke settles, everybody in this room would probably say, Yeah, I know the Lord loves me. And probably everybody in this room would say, I know He's coming back soon, and I know one day that I'm going to be like Him. So here then comes the third question, that practical truth to be behaved. Are you letting that govern your life? If you're not, why don't you talk to the Lord about that this afternoon? Why don't you talk to him about the specific things that you're struggling with, the specific ways that you find yourself uh, failing and flagging in your life day by day and ask him to work on you and to be diligent in convicting you. And we know he's always altogether faithful. You don't need to ask it because he won't do it. You need to ask it because you won't notice it when he does it unless it's present of your mind. And ask him to keep you accountable, to work with you, to, to, to more closely govern your life, why don't you meet him in the altar and let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. As the piano player comes, I pray that you'd have perfect liberty in this service this afternoon. Lord, that we'd not in any way resist you or try to thwart what you've done. But Lord, that we'd allow you to have a perfect work in us for your glory. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I know you love me. I can look at Calvary and tell you love me. Thank you for loving me.